Friends, may I wish all of you a Gemar Chatima Tova. May it be a really good year for you, for your families, for the Jewish people throughout the world, especially for the people of Israel in the state of Israel. We pray it should be a year of blessing and of peace. Amen. Can I just say thank you on all our behalfs to um, Dr. Rafi Zaram and Dr. Tamara Games for the uh, incredible... Right, right, sorry. Uh, right, sorry. <laughs> It's wonderful, you know. I come here to accumulate ever more sins to confess on Yom Kippur. <laughs> Tamara, will you forgive me? Thank you. There we are. May you have a year of learning and of the joy of learning. Amen. Friends, uh, I don't know um, if you noticed, we did a new Mahsa this year. And so, you know, I tell you what happens. It's, it's you know, Mitzvah Guerrero's Mitzvah, 2000 and whenever it was, we brought out a new Siddha. And the first comment everyone said was, no, and what about the Machsa? So we finally got round to the Machsa, and now everyone says, but what about Yom Kippur? So uh, we're working on it, and that is the nature of the Shia I want to share with you. Because it is when you do a Machsa or a Siddha, that you discover stuff that you didn't notice before. Uh, you discover mistranslations, uh, 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 commentaries that are not quite right, and so on and so forth. Uh, for instance, did you ever notice in the Old Singer's Prayer Book, it used to say in the Prayer for the State of Israel, it used to wish Tzahal, Vishlach Brachava Tzlacha The English, and it was said in English, was send blessing and prosperity to the work of their hands as if Tzahal were an investment bank. Uh, you don't actually wish an army prosperity. You wish them success. But apparently for all those years, for 15 years, nobody noticed this. It was absolutely extraordinary. I don't know if I ever mentioned to you the, uh, the changing translation of the uh, Yukum Purkan. Did I mention this to you? Um, here it is, and this is the measure of the change that has taken place in British Jewry. Yukum Purgan includes, among other things, a prayer for Zara Chaya for healthy children. Zara Delo Yivsuk Vado Yivtul Mipiskome Araisa. What does that mean? Anyone know? I'll tell you. Means children who never stop learning. But nobody could understand that in Anglo Jewry because, you know, who was into Jewish day schools and learning? What did you have a rov for? The rov learnt. You didn't need to learn. So for over a hundred years, Yukum Polkon, the translation was. Children who do not neglect nor break with any of the words of this law. In other words, it was about kiyuma mitzvot. It was about fulfilling mitzvahs, not about learning. So in the 2006 Green Singer's Prayer Book, we translated it correctly. Children who will neither cease nor interrupt learning. And do you know how many people noticed? Nobody. So, uh, <laughs> so there you are. It's you know, in case you ever take yourself too seriously. So, let us look at one of the famous piyutim that we say on Kol Nidre night. It's a famous piyut which goes. Here's the first source: Kihine kachomer 
biyad hayotze, right? It is like, we are like clay in the hands of the potter. Bitsoso marchi bitsoso makatze, as he wishes, he makes it big or he makes it small. So we are in your hands. Chesed notzev, etc., etc. Labris habet valtefen layetzer. Look to the covenant and do not look to the accuser. Now. Um, that, this is the translation in uh, most Machzorim and most Mufarshim, right? So, oh, sorry, you didn't give me the source here. Never mind, I'll, let me just explain to you. Here it is. First of all, the translation, according to many Machzorim, is look to the covenant and don't look to the accuser. Now, the first thing I want to ask is, does Yetzer mean accuser? Clearly not. What is the word for accuser? Satan or kategor. Satan or kategor. So the first thing we note is that the traditional commentaries on this prayer, I mean they're not traditional, the, the, the com such commentaries as exist on this prayer, are identifying this prayer with what famous scene? I mean, it's quite a good scene. I mean, it's a great scene, actually. What scene? Which? The Book of Job. Exactly. The shul on Kol Nidre night is like the beginning of the Book of Job, where Satan is saying there's no one fully righteous on earth, etc., etc. That is how the commentary understands it. And clearly, but clearly, it is wrong. That cannot be the correct translation. Secondly... Labris habet. Anyone guess what this covenant is, according to the Mufarshim? According to the Mufarshim, and I, I say these are not classic Mufarshim because we don't have classic commentaries on the Siddha. Um, have a look here in the in the Talmudic source here in Rosh Hashanah, Dabs Yud Zayin Ahmed Beis. Vayavara Hashem al Panav Vayikra. This is the Yud Gimel Midas Rachamim. This is the passage at the core of Slichas. Omar Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan said, Il male mikra kasuv omro. If it weren't written explicitly in the Torah, you couldn't say it. Well, it isn't written explicitly in the Torah, but uh, Rabbi Yochanan is taking po poetic license. Malameid shenis kishliach What scene is this? Anyone know? Yeah, Mo Moses is up Mount Sinai praying to God to forgive them for the sin of the golden calf. And God passes by, and Rabbi Yochanan infers from this, were it not written, it would be impossible to say such a thing. This teaches that HaKadosh Baruch Hu wrapped himself in a talus like a shliach tzibur. And he taught Moses how to daven. Amalo, he said to him, If ever Israel sin, then do to me what I am going to 
show you, and I will forgive them. Hashem, Hashem, etc., etc. Ani hu kodem sheyachter adam, ani hu laachas sheyachter adam. Biyaset tshuva erachum v'chanan. Abar Rabbi Yehuda bris kruzal ishlosha esrei midos she'enon chosrin reikam. God made a covenant with the Jewish people on the basis of the thirteen attributes of mercy. That whenever we say those thirteen attributes of mercy, He forgives us. Right? Let us just give you the background here. What One of the things we do in these days leading up to Yom Kippur and on Yom Kippur itself is to say slichas. And slichas are based on the moment when Moshe Rabbeinu prayed to, the Israel, uh, prayed to God to forgive the Israelites for, for, for uh, making the golden calf. And Hashem passes by and says, Hashem, Hashem, Kel Rachum V'chanun. And Moses himself acts on the basis of that on one later occasion. Anyone know? One? Exactly. The Chet HaMaraglim. When the spies commit their sin, Moshe Rabbeinu does what God had done at the episode of the Golden Calf. He plays to God for mercy. And God says, Salachti Kidvarecha. So I, uh, I have forgiven as you asked. In other words, you will have a look at Slichas, have a look at Slichas on Yom Kippur itself. You will see that Chazal spliced together these two passages, the passage of Cheta Egel and the passage of Cheta Maraglim, the sin of the golden calf and the sin of the spice. They spliced them together and they explained them by saying that at the sin of the spies, God taught Moses how to pray. And of the sin of the spies, Moses prayed that way and was answered. Um, so you will see that Vayavor Hashem al Yikra, and then we say the Yud Gimomidas, and then we say Salachti Kidvaracha, and we don't notice that what sages have stuck together two passages from two different books. Incidentally, why does Rabbi Yochanan say that the Torah says specifically that God wrapped himself in a talus like Ishliya Tzibur? How would you normally translate the phrase Vayavor Hashem al Panav? Normally we translate that as God passed by Moses. But Rabbi Yochanan says God passed over, covered over his own face. Vayavor Hashem al Panav. Meaning that he put a talus over his face so that Moshe Rabbeinu wouldn't have to see his face. You with me? So that is Rabbi Yochanan. And that, according to the Mufarshim, is the covenant. La bris habait. Don't listen to the accuser. Listen to the, think about the covenant that you made with Moshe Rabbeinu on Mount Sinai when he prayed for forgiveness for the golden calf. If you go back and have a look at your Machzorim, you will see that's how they translate it. The Yetzer is the accuser, and the covenant is the covenant of the Yud Gimel Midas Rachm. And both are wrong. So I just want to explain to you what is this real story behind this particular piece of liturgical poetry, because it is fascinating. And it isn't stated anywhere, so I'm giving this to you. It will come out as soon as I finish the next Marsa, and you'll have it in the Marsa, but uh, it's something that, 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 that I only noticed when I was translating and writing the commentary. And I want us now to think very simply about a biblical episode where the word Yetzer functions significantly. 
No, a little later than that, Flora. Yeah. Before and after the flood. And now I want us to focus very carefully on two biblical passages. And you will see that they are extraordinarily difficult to understand. Here it is. Let's just remind ourselves of the story of the flood. God has created humanity in his image. He has high hopes. This is Tzalem Elohim. Those high hopes are disappointed. Adam and Eve sin. Cain kills Abel. And before long, the world is filled with violence. And God, in the words of the Torah, regrets that he ever created humanity. Now have a look very carefully at the source. It's source three. Hashem God saw how great was the wickedness of humanity on earth. And all the inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil the whole day. And God regretted that he had created man on earth. One of the most poignant lines in the whole of Tanakh. God was pained to his very core. And that is, um, that is the situation. And God then decreates the universe, brings a flood. And so at the height of the flood, we find ourselves back again as the universe was before the first day of creation. Haaretz tohu vavohu the world was waste and void, and there was darkness over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And then, having just saved this one uh, family and, and the animals, um, God begins again and recreates the earth. And Noah, when he comes out, gives a, uh, gives a, um, makes a little korban, makes, a, uh, makes an offering, and God sees the offering, it says he smells the offering, and he, we then read the following. Do you have it? Source 4. Hashem et God smelt the sweet savor. Hashem elibo, and God said to himself, Lo osif I will never again curse the ground, adam, because a man, ki yetzer lev ha'adam ram in ura. Because the inclination of man is evil from youth. I will never again destroy life, as I have done before. Do you notice a contradiction here? Can you see the contradiction? In Bracious chapter 6, the fact that every inclination of the human heart is evil is a reason for God to destroy the, to uh, bring a flood. In Genesis 8, the very same thing is the reason for God never again to bring a flood. Now, either seeing that humanity, human inclinations are evil is a reason to destroy humanity, or it's a reason not to destroy humanity, but one way or another, it cannot be both. Does that make sense? It can't be both. There is a flat contradiction between these two verses. And that is what sends our Paitan, and it sent the sages, to try and resolve this riddle. How is it in Bereshit 6, God 
it, it condemns humanity because of the evil thoughts that he has, and that in two chapters later vows never again to do it for the very same reason. And we have here a principle that divrei Torah aniim b'makom echad ashirim b'makom Sometimes the words of Torah are poor or, uh, or slender in one place, but very rich in another place. You can use the whole of Tanakh to understand any bit of Tanakh. And this led the sages into a, uh, a, another pair of verses, which again say the same thing, but in two very different ways. And here is the first. It is in source five. And I will just tell you the story. God tells Jeremiah to go to the local potter's house and see how he makes earthenware vessels. And Jeremiah goes to the potter's house, sees the potter who is not very happy with one of his pots. So what, what do you do? Do we have a potter in our midst? No. Oh. Shucks, okay. Uh, <laughs> one way or another, you take the clay, you, yeah, you mix it all together, and you begin again. And that is what Jeremiah sees, and then he hears God saying the following. By heat of Hashem, the word of God came to me saying, Do you think I cannot behave towards you the way the potter does to his clay. Like clay in the hands of the potter, so are you to me, the house of Israel. Right? And it is clearly this passage from which the Python built his verse. This is the biblical source of that phrase. And uh, the, Hashem then continues explaining to Jeremiah, if I warn, announce that a kingdom is going to be destroyed, and that nation does tshuva for all the wicked it has done, I will myself um, not bring about the evil that I promised. But if it doesn't, then uh, if it does evil in my sight, but if it doesn't listen to me, then I won't do any of the good things I promise, and I will do bad things. In other words, Hashem says through Jeremiah, Jeremiah, just tell the Israelites, I am, the pot, I am the potter here, and you're only the clay. I know what I want to achieve, and either we'll do it my way, or we will do it your way. Either you do tshuva, in which case it'll happen nicely, or if not, I will do to you what the potter does to clay when he doesn't like the pot, which is, you don't want to know, okay? You really don't want to know. So in Jeremiah, this image of clay in the hands of the potter is an image of the all-powerfulness of God and the powerlessness of humanity to defy God, and it is in the form of a threat. Rabot Hashem, Hitakum. 
What God has decided will happen, whatever human beings uh, choose to do. Either God will bring it about nicely if you do tshuva, or he'll do it in a very painful way if you don't do tshuva. One way or another, I'm in charge. That is Jeremiah. However, it is very interesting that the self-same image is used by the prophet Isaiah in a completely opposite way. And can you see it in source 6? This is an absolutely beautiful passage in Isaiah. Isaiah, late Isaiah, from whom we have all our Shiva de Nechemta, I call Isaiah the poet laureate of hope. And these last 27 chapters, 26 chapters, uh, is it 26 chapters of the book of Isaiah, are amongst the most lovely in all of literature. And here is Isaiah praying to Akadosh Baruch Hu. Can you see it? Vata Hashem. Now God, listen, who are we? Avinu Atta. You are our Father. It may be that we've been sinful. It may be that we've neglected you. But Avinu Atta, you are our Father. Anachnu hachomer, va'ata yotzreinu. We are just the clay, and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hands. Therefore, please don't get too angry with us, Hashem. And don't remember our sins forever. Look, we are all your people. In other words, Isaiah does something beautiful. He says, you think we're bad? You know what? Maybe we are. But who made us this way? We're just the clay. You're the potter. We're just your children. You gave us your genes. You know, one way or another. It's, you know, we're your image. We're your creation. We're your children. We are what you made us. We are merely the clay and you are the potter. And that is the point which our Python uses to solve the whole issue. And he does so on the basis of a Talmudic passage and a Midrashic passage. Have a look, first of all, at source 8. Here's a Talmudic passage. If it were not for these three verses, we would have nothing to say to a Kodesh Baruch on Yom Kippur or whenever we're praying to Hashem. What are the three verses? Dixiv Asher Hariosi, another one which says, another, All three verses are implying that somehow or other, God is responsible for making us what we are. Yeah? All three verses. If you have a look at the Rashi, Rashi right? Can you see Rashi in source 9? Dixiv Asher Hareosi. Chazal are interpreting this as meaning this people who's, who I made evil. 
I mean, it's a very radical reading. It actually means who I did evil to, I punished. But the sages read, Asher Hariyosi, I'm responsible for making them uh, that way. Can you see Rashi? Reisha Dikra, Osefa Atzaleva, Nidocha, Kabetza, Asher Hariyosi, Ani Garamtilayam, Sheberosi Yetzara. I was responsible for them doing sinning because I created the Yetzirah. And all three verses are like that. Um, can you see Rashi the next line? You want us not to sin? Take away the Yetzirah. It's in your hands. It's not in our hands. So this is the first Gemara. The Gemara that says, if you look at the at the um, if you look at uh, these verses, um, you will see that it is possible to mount a defense of the fact that we are sinful human beings on the basis that God created the Yetzirah. You will see that that Gemara quotes the verse from Jeremiah. However, you can't actually read the verse from Jeremiah that way unless you have the verse from Isaiah to help you. Because Jeremiah does not use this image to defend Israel. He uses it to threaten Israel. It is Isaiah who uses it to defend Israel. And that is why we have to read the next passage, which is from Shemot Rabbah, which is all based on the Isaiah passage. Mahu anachnu yudzrenu. What is the meaning of the line in Isaiah? We are the clay and you are the potter. Amru Yisrael, When you were getting angry with the Jewish people, you said to Jeremiah, you, the Bnei Yisrael, are just like clay and I am the potter. That means you are all powerful and we are powerless. Therefore, even though we sin and provoke you. Don't leave us. Why? Because we are just the clay and you are the potter. Come and see. Uh, here it is. If you ever want to take up pottery, here's your crash course or smash course, what it is. If a potter takes clay and in that clay is a pebble, and he doesn't remove the pebble. Apparently, if you put the pot in the kiln, the stone, the pebble expands at a different rate from the clay, and the pot cracks. And the end result is, if you put liquid in it, it will all uh, drain away through the crack. Now, tell me, who's responsible for the liquid draining away? The, the pot? It must be the potter. So, Rabbanu Shalom, then don't blame us. You made us that way. This is what the Jewish people said to Hashem. Rabbanu Shalom, you made the Yetzirah. And you said it yourself because it says, Ki The whole inclination of man's thoughts are only evil from his youth. It was the Yetzer that caused us to sin. And it's the sin in us, is Yetzer in us, is like the pebble in the, in the vase. You didn't remove it. Well, don't blame us. 
If you want us not to sin, just get rid of the pebble, pebble just get rid of the Yetzirah, and then we will do your will. And Hashem says, all right, I will. Lasid lover, at the end of days, we will all go through brain surgery and we will only do good thereafter. But in the meantime, Hashem has to put up with us because he made us this way. Now, can you see what is happening here in these two verses? Isaiah is taking the image of Jeremiah, but he's turning it upside down. What Jeremiah was saying was, guys, you're powerless, so I'm going to simply smash you and begin again. Isaiah reverses it, because in Jeremiah, it's God speaking to humanity. In Isaiah, it's humanity speaking to God, saying, listen what you've just said. You just said, we're powerless and you're powerful. Therefore, if you want us not to sin, you bring it about. But if you want us to stay the way you made us, then please don't blame us, blame you. So Jeremiah, Isaiah takes the logic of Jeremiah and turns it from God's threat to us to our powerful plea to Hashem. And that now is um, what is how the Paitan is able to resolve the um, contradiction between Genesis 6 and Genesis 8. Can you see Genesis 6 uses the word Yetzer exactly like Jeremiah does, you know? God is saying, okay guys, I don't like the look of you. I'm going to smash you and begin again. That is exactly what God did to humanity in the flood. I'm going to give up on this particular piece of pottery, this particular species of humanity. We're going to destroy it, and we're going to start again with Noah. In Genesis 6, God is speaking the way he does in the book of Jeremiah. In Genesis 8, he takes that image and turns it upside down exactly as Isaiah does. And he says, you know what? Given that human beings have this evil inclination from youth, I can't really blame them anymore because that's the way I formed them. And he uses the very argument that he used before the flood to bring the flood, now to say, I am never again going to make humanity suffer. And what we have here is actually something very interesting. We normally interpret this particular piece of Chazal as applying to Bereshis 1 at the very beginning. But we can now see it works better at, 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 in Genesis 6 to 8. The famous statement that how did God create the world? He created it under the aspect of strict justice. And he saw that the world could not survive. What did he do? To strict justice, he added Midas Rachamim. And that is the difference between Bereshis 6 and Bereshis 8. In Bereshis 6, strict justice says humanity is to be condemned. But then God sees. Rabbanu Shalom, look at these people. They can't do anything other. They have this evil inclination from youth. And he then uses Midat Rachamim to say, never again will I condemn humanity. Are you following? And that is the transition from Bereshis 6 to Bereshis 8, which is the transition from Jeremiah to Isaiah. Now, 
What is, uh, what is the logic of this? It's very interesting. What, does, what is the key verb in Bereshis chapter 1? Bereshis, bara Elohim. So in Bereshis 1, we have an image that God creates man in his image. And the word bara means creation, yesh me'ayin. Creation of something from nothing. But have a look at what verb it uses in Bereshis chapter 2. Can you see it's in the next source? What verb? Vayitza Hashem Elohim et Adam. God formed. And what is the difference between Briah and Yitzirah? According to everyone. Briah is Yesh Me'ayin, something from nothing. Yitzirah is Yesh Me. Yesh. Something from something. And what is the something? It says very simply, He created man from the dust of the earth. In other words, from clay. And he breathes into it. And that is how our Paitan is understanding this huge connection between the word Vayitza in Bereshis 2, Yetzer in Bereshis 6 and 8. God finally realizes why, does he, why do human beings sin? Because of the Yetzer, but I was the Yetzer. I formed man this way. I formed him from the clay, like a potter creates a vase. As we would put it nowadays, I suppose. Um, um, I I'm finally decided to take on the Dawkins challenge, okay? So I'm going to be debating Richard Dawkins on Cholomid Sukkis on Radio 4, so we'll see how... Anyway, uh, anyway, well, you know, if, if I get out alive, I will bench Gomel. <laughs> but what we would say nowadays is, here are genetically encoded instincts. What, what, what the Hasidim call Nefesh HaBahamit, the animal soul, that, that thing that we, we just have as one of the elements of our being. Hashem created us with that Yetzer because that's how we evolved from, we are, you know, the dust of exploded stars. We are made from clay and Hashem is the potter. And in Bereshis 6, Hashem only sees the evil that human beings do. That's Midat Hadin. But in Bereshis 8, he sees that, in a sense, this is how I made human beings in Bereshis 2. I was the Yotzer, and as a result, they have the Yotzer. And that's how the poet has woven his exegesis from these five biblical passages, three of them in Bereshis using the word Yotzer, and two of them in Nevi'im, one in Jeremiah, one in Isaiah, using this image of clay in the hands of the potter. Now, I just um, want to ask what happens next after Bereshis chapter 8. When he smells the Reach and I'm sorry, do, do, does this make sense to you? You, you, you? You're a parent and God forbid, God forbid, you have a very mischievous child. 
who never does what you tell them, especially when you tell them to go to bed, okay? And you get a bit angry with them and this, that, and the other. And one morning, this child comes in, five years old, four years old, with a little card, you know, with a smiley face or two smiley faces and people hand in hand and saying, I love you, Dad. I love you, Mom. Can you, can you still be angry with such a child? That is what happens to humanity when Hashem smell, sees Noah making a, a karban. I mean, does it matter to Hashem? But here's a human being who loves Hashem. And that is the moment when Hashem's heart is changed, and that's when Midat Rachamim permanently enters the human condition. And what does God do next in Barashis 9? He makes a covenant. With whom? With B'nai Noah. Now, I want you to see something very important here. You know that we have spoken, I'm sure, various times about this insight that Chazal had, and it was recovered in the 20th century by Martin Buber and Franz Rosenzweig of motif words. That is, in a certain passage, a particular word is repeated again and again and again so that you can hear that that word is the key theme of that passage. And very often it is repeated a significant number of times, either three times or five times, or very especially seven times. Sometimes, you know, it, the number is pretty significant most of the time. One word appears seven times in Bracious One. Does anyone know what that word is? <laughs> what? Tov. The word tov. God's, God says, let there be, and there was. Fayaralukim kitov. The word tov appears. And remember what I said. Horatius one is creation. The flood is decreation. And then Noah comes out and we get recreation. But this time, another word appears seven times. Anyone know what word appears seven times in Horatius chapter 9? The word Brit. The word covenant. In other words, Horatius 1, Hashem expects everything to be naturally good. It turns out almost everything is, but human beings aren't. And therefore, when God wants to create a new order with Noah, an order that we can live by, he no longer expects us to be naturally tov. Instead, he offers us a covenant. A covenant of mutual responsibility. I will sustain you, but I ask in return that you agree to this minimum, what we call the sheva Mitzvot B'nai Noah. Right? And now, friends, what is the meaning of Hinei Kechome Biyad HaYotze? Labris Habet Val Tefen LaYetze? First of all, what is the Yetze? The Yetze is the evil inclination. It's not the accuser. Secondly, the poet is not thinking about the scene at the beginning of the book of Job. He is thinking about the scene after the flood. And what is Labrit Habet? Which covenant should Hashem be looking at rather than at the Yetzer? The Brit B'nai Noah. 
<laughs> that is what the poet is saying. La bris habait, therefore don't destroy us, give us life. Valtefen layetzer, and keep by your word embraces eight, that we can't help our yetzer, because that's the way you made us. And via, and he saw that Rakra min urav, that you know, from youth we have this yetzara, and that's our yetzer, but you are our yotzer, and therefore don't look at the yetzer, because you placed it in us. La bris habait, look at the covenant you made with Noah. And that is how one liturgical poet has woven together five biblical texts, three from Barashis, two from the Nevi'im, to come up with this wonderful, wonderful concept of defending the Jewish people and indeed humanity on this day of days, on this night of nights, on Kol Nidre night. Are you following? And for some reason, the commentators didn't see this, so I'm just sharing it with you now. Now, I want us to um, see the following. Number one, are you a bit surprised by this, that it's the Noahide covenant rather than any of the Jewish covenants? I'm sure you have noticed, sorry, Rafi. It makes it universal as opposed to Jewish. Exactly so. There is one fundamental difference between the three Shlosh uh, Regalim, between Pesach Shavuos and Sukkot on the one hand, and Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur on the other. What is the difference? How does, what's, how does the middle passage of the Yomida begin on Pesach Shavuos and Sukkot? It's Jewish singularity. You chose us, Jews, from all peoples. It's all about the unique relationship between God and the Jewish people. How does the Amina begin on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? It's all about humanity in general. The Amida begins with humanity in general. Have a look at uh, what we say in Unasan Etokev. Olam. Kol Yetzur, Kol Buriyah. It's all about everything that is. The entire universe is judged on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Why? Because these are the festivals of creation rather than revelation or redemption. And God, as creator, is the God of all humanity. If you look, all the festivals of Tishri have a universalistic dimension, whereas the other festivals have a particular dimension. They're all about all humanity. And that is why the Paitan here is talking about the Brit B'nai Noach. And in any case, he could not but talk about the Brit B'nai Noach because that's where the word Yetzer appears. So number one, note the universality of this prayer. And it's very moving. I find the whole thing is incredibly moving that we don't ask everyone to worship as we worship. But nonetheless, we are concerned that God forgive all humanity. What is the final biblical reading that we do on Yom Kippur? The book of Jonah, which is about, it's about God sending Yonah to the unchained Nineveh. And Yonah doesn't like it very much because they're not Jewish. Besides which, they're, you know, they're Assyrians. They're, they are not our friends at all. And he runs away, but God says at the end, here are 120,000 people, you know, uh, 
I made them. Shouldn't I have Rachmanus on them? Incidentally, um, I don't have anyone got a book of Jonah. If you, if you, if you have a look in uh, that lovely prayer we say in Slichus, Hanashama Lach, Vaguf Pa'alach, Chusana Al Amalach. If you look at the last verses of the book of Jonah, you will see that last phrase, Vachusa Al Amalach, he says, you were worried about this gourd, this kikayon, which you didn't labor. You weren't a male to bring it up. But shall I not have, shall I not be chas? Shall I not have compassion on 120,000 people, etc.? In other words, the paitan of that particular bit of slichus is actually quoting the last two verses from the book of Jonah. So you see the, that, that, that um, Yom Kippur culminates in terms of biblical reading with the most universalistic of all the books in the whole of Tanakh. So that is the first point, the universalism. Secondly, what kind of logic is the Paitan using? I mean, Rabbanu <laughs> Shalalam, please forgive us, because if you're upset the way we are, you made us that way. What, what would you call that? <laughs> Chutzpah, exactly so. <laughs> and on Yom Kippur, even Chutzpah works. Um, this is called this is called being Melamed Zuchut. I give you an example in the last of the Makorot. I don't know if you have it here. Um, you know, the, I, I'll explain it. You don't need to see it in the source. You look at it later. You know, there is a place name in the beginning of Devarim, which is fascinating. You know, the, right at the beginning of Devarim, Moshe Rabbeinu is recounting some of the places that they went to. And there's one place name he mentions which doesn't appear anywhere else, and everyone wants to know why is it there. And the place is called Dizahav. And Chazal give the most brilliant, extraordinary interpretation of this. Uh, when they are giving, uh, when they are giving uh, an explanation of the prayers, that Moshe Rabbeinu prayed that got God to forgive them from the, for the sin of the golden calf. Chazal said, this is what Moshe Rabbeinu said to a Kodesh Baruch He says, Rabbeinu, you're quite right. They made a golden calf. And it's a terrible thing to make a golden calf. But tell me, Rabbeinu, how come they, did they have the gold to begin with? You told them to ask for it. You gave them the gold. So they weren't supposed to do something with it. If you hadn't given them the gold, they would never have made a golden calf. That is, dizahav. You gave them too much gold. Your temi die, dizahav. You gave them an excess of gold, and that's why they made the golden calf. That is called being melamed zuchut. That's what you pay a good barrister to do. That is what is called in America the junk food defense. You know this defense, this guy who went around killing people and his barrister said, well, he eats a lot of Mars bars and it gets him all hyper. So, you know, don't blame him, blame the junk food. This is called the junk food defense. It's called being melamed zuchut. And it is something very Jewish. I don't know if all barristers are Jewish, most of them are. Um, but it's something very beautiful. And, and the great, great expert of all time, and my favorite Rav of all time, was Levi Yitzchak Berdichev. And he used to be Melamed Zuchus on Am Yisrael, on the Yamim Narayim. And my favorite Levi Yitzchak Berdichev story, there's so many of them. You know, Levi Yitzchak Berdichev, one Shabbos, is in the main town square, and there is a Jew smoking a cigarette on Shabbos in public. So Rabbi Yitzchak goes up to him and says, Rabbi, Rabbi, 
you forgot, you forgot, you forgot the day with Shabbos. And the Jew said, no, I know it's Shabbos. Oh, he said, ah, ah, you forgot that you're not allowed to smoke on Shabbos. And the guy says, no, I know you're not allowed to smoke on Shabbos. Ah, Rebid, I hate to tell you this, but somehow, inadvertently, you put a cigarette in your mouth and lit it, and the Jew says, no, no, I know perfectly well that I'm smoking a cigarette on Shabbos. And Levi Yitzchak looks up to heaven and says, Rabbeinu Shalom, me come chai Yisrael, what a people you have. You give them every chance to tell a lie, and they won't. This is being Malamed Zuchus. And that is what the Python is saying here. You know, we're just the Chama And who did he learn it from? He learned it from Isaiah. This is the extraordinary thing. You remember what Isaiah said? Avinu Ata. You're our father. We're just the clay. You're the potter. He learned this from Isaiah. This extraordinary thing which stretches from rabbinic midrash all the way to all the way to the Hasidic masters of the 18th and 19th century. It belongs there at the very beginning of, of, of the history of prophecy in Israel. Because this particular verse from chapter 64 in Isaiah is the first recorded instance I know of of being Malamid Zuchut in quite that way. And it's it's a wonderful tradition, and you see where it's based. And let me finally um, try and explain something to you, um, which is, is, is really complicated, but uh, it's complicated. Tell me, if you were a judge, would you buy this defense? <laughs> yes or no? I mean... <laughs> Depends, right? It depends. Catch me on a good day, yes, but most days, no. I, want to, I just want to explain something to you. And here, I really, I'm just going to hint at something because I haven't written the book and I, I, I need to write it. But here it goes. I once argued, and it's, I say it very briefly in my book, what is called Radical Then Radical Now, that there is a fundamentally different way that Jews think from the way that the Greeks thought. In fact, uh, the new book, uh, Great Partnership, is a little bit about it. And I want to explain something very yesudi, something very fundamental. The Greeks were the great masters of logic. Aristotelian syllogisms, the Greeks thought through logic. And the basis of Greek logic is called the law of contradiction. Either P or not P. Either the statement is true or it's false. Those two alternatives. Judaism does not see truth as two-dimensional, as flat. It sees truth as three- or four-dimensional, so that two statements that seem to be contradicting one another may both be true, but they see things from different perspectives. And there are ways in which the Torah does this, and I call this the dialogical imagination and the chronological imagination. The dialogical imagination is like for instance, the Mishnah. Beis Hillel says this, Beis Shammai says that. And the two are in dialogue with one another. And both may be true from different perspectives. We pask in the law like one of them, but we don't eliminate the other. You will know, although the sages ruled according to Beit Hillel, nonetheless, Beit Shammai always appears in the Mishnah. They didn't take it out. And as you know, they teach Beit Shammai before they state the views of Hillel. 
And sometimes it works chronologically. How, for instance? There was a very, very great Jewish thinker of the 20th century, Rav Soloveitchik of blessed memory. And he wrote a famous extended essay called The Lonely Man of Faith, in which he says that we have two images of humanity in Judaism. Adam one, what he calls majestic man, the power of humanity to explain and control the universe. We, we are creators. And then Adam two, covenantal man, when we are not creators, we are creations. We are full of awe and we're passive in the face of experience. And he sees that as an existential contradiction. But in truth, Jews resolve that contradiction how? Anyone know? What? Yeah, but this, this is clever, Flora. How? Six days a week, we are Adam 1. On the seventh day, we're Adam 2. That's what I call the chronological imagination. Some days we live out one truth, and other days we live out another truth. Are you with me? Niels Bohr, the Nobel Prize winning physicist, came up with something called complementarity theory. Now, if there's anyone here who understands complementarity theory, please explain it to me, because if not, I'm going to give you my badly garbled version. Anyone know what it is? Could somebody explain this for us? Okay, well, all right. Here it goes. Here it goes. Is light a series of particles or is it a series of waves? And as you know, light shows both properties. So how can we resolve this? And here is a lovely little story. It's a true story. This is how Niels Bohr worked it out. His son, who was a good kid, but obviously he fell into bad company, and his son stole something from the local shop. And the shopkeeper noticed and came to tell Niels Bohr about it. And Niels Bohr said, I was sitting there trying to get my thoughts in order, and I found that I was caught between two ways of seeing the situation. What I would say if I were the judge, if I were the magistrate, and what I would say as the boy's father. And I couldn't possibly, you know, I couldn't reconcile this. Are you with me? There's, if I were the magistrate, this is what I would have to say. But if I'm just a dad, this is what I have to say. And that led him to this idea of complementarity theory, that you can see things in two different ways, but not both at once. <clears throat> Do you remember those um, visual images, the Gestalt psychology thing, the figure that looks like a duck seen one way and a rabbit seen the other, and you flip between the two, and you can't see them both at the same time, but you can see them sequentially. And that is what I see in Judaism. That's what I'm, when, you know, there's a moment when we live out this truth, and there's a moment when we live out the other truth. And now, if you're willing to see the final coup de grace, as it were, of this whole thing, this is what Rabbi Akiva saw, and it gave rise to two words that are the key words of our prayer on the Yom in the Rhine. What are the two words? Avinu, Malkainu. Rabbanu Shalalam, we stole something from the local store. And we know, these are days of judgment. So you're sitting as the magistrate. No, you're sitting as Malkainu. You are the Hamelech Hamishpat, 
the God who meets out justice by Rabbana Shalom. You're also our Venus. So please, before you start thinking of us as a judge would think of our behavior, think as a father would think in relation to his children. And it is that ability to put those two words together in that order that makes Rabbi Akiva the key figure in the whole of this way we relate to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And who was the pers- first person to use the word Avinu to be Melamed Zuchut on Klal Yisrael? You just saw it in the verse. Isaiah. Avinu you got a thine against us. But at the end of the day, Avinuata. So you see how Isaiah inspires these two great traditions. Number one, the tradition of being Malamid Zuchut, of learning, uh, of, of seeing the merit in Israel and rising to their defense. And the phraseology of Rabbi Akiva, which operates such a key role in the Yemei Tshuva. Friends, I, I hope that we can see what extraordinary depth is buried in one single line of our prayers on Yom Kippur. And surely to goodness, um, the more we study our prayers, the more things of beauty we will see. But I think it is a really lovely thing that even if 364 days of the year we act as if we have free will and as if we have pure responsibility for everything we ever did. Nonetheless, Hashem loves us that one day, that only one day, when we say, Rabbana Shalala, we couldn't help it. You made us that way. That is the only day Hashem listens to that particular appeal. And that is why we get it in with the first opportunity. That is a chronological truth because we couldn't live the whole of the year round like that. Uh, we would just uh, lose all moral uh, responsibility. So I hope I've given you a little insight into one line of the uh, of the Friday of the prayers we're going to say on this Yom Kippur. May Hashem accept all our prayers. May we be melamed zechut on one another, and may He bless us all and write us and seal us in the Book of Life. Amen. Amen.